Hello, and welcome to this reading of the Ames Tribune for Friday, May 8th, 2020. Your reader today is Dave Sauerman, and you are listening to IRIS, your Iowa radio reading and information service for the blind and print handicapped. And here's our first story. Story County cases increased by 12. The new total sits at 52. The story is written by Kylie Wellendorf, staff writer for the Ames Tribune. In its largest one-day total increase, Story County saw a rise of 12 positive COVID-19 cases on Thursday, bringing the county's new total to 52, according to the Iowa Department of Public Health. The increase comes one day after Kim Reynolds issued a new proclamation easing coronavirus restrictions for many businesses statewide. The governor's proclamation announced on Wednesday evening authorized Iowa dentist offices, campgrounds, tanning salons, and drive-in movie theaters to reopen with some limitations. It also allowed the reopening of some businesses in the 22 counties with the highest COVID-19 infection rates. Those counties were not included in the order last week, allowing some reopenings of non-essential businesses in the other 77 counties, including Story and Boone. Restaurants in the 22 counties still are barred from offering dining room service, unlike in the other counties, where they can operate at 50% of capacity. The majority of the 12 confirmed cases in Story County were tested through McFarland Clinic, though the exact number was not immediately known, according to Steve Sullivan, spokesperson for Mary Greeley. At least one case was tested through Story County Medical Clinic in Nevada, Sullivan said. All the others were tested at sites outside of Story County. COVID-19 has affected males slightly more than females in Story County at 51% according to state figures. According to the state's coronavirus website, Iowa now has a total of 11,059 positive cases, an increase of 655 from Wednesday. In her daily coronavirus press conference on Thursday, Governor Reynolds discussed her decision to authorize some businesses in the 22 counties where COVID-19 infection rates have been higher to reopen. As we have seen this past week, she said, Business owners will decide whether the time is right to reopen their doors, just as Iowans choose whether or not they will resume some of their normal duties. Schools remain closed statewide, as do hair salons and barbershops. Our next story, an Ames resident and Des Moines Area Community College nursing student will join Mary Greeley in COVID-19 efforts. This story is written by Robbie Sequera, staff writer for the Tribune. When the COVID-19 pandemic began to take shape in March, Des Moines Area Community College, Boone Campus, nursing student and Ames resident, Thomas Lundberg's spring semester plans were suddenly put in flux. The pandemic's effect on DMAC's ability to hold in-class sessions and training for nursing students put on hold Lundberg's hopes of participating in a preceptorship where he would be working side-by-side with a registered nurse and essentially taking on all of the responsibilities and patient load that the nurse would. Working a preceptorship is a huge part of the nursing program and it was something all of my classmates and I were looking forward to, Lunenberg said. Despite this, 
it was important to remember that we were safe and would be graduating on time. The virtual simulations themselves are going well. I found them very beneficial and helpful to my future practice. Now, following a late March proclamation by Governor Reynolds, Lunenburg will join the Mary Greeley Medical Center's ongoing, uh, excuse me, ontological unit and will provide aid in the pandemic beginning on Monday. The governor's proclamation issued on March 27 gave the Iowa Board of Nursing the authority to issue emergency licenses to nurses who have not yet obtained their initial licensure, so long as they completed their educational requirements. At first, I wasn't sure what the governor's proclamation meant for me or others in my class, since we were not able to do the preceptorship and we were learning virtually, Ludenberg said. Many of the state's nursing students who were set to graduate this May, but have not yet obtained their nursing licenses, will be able to complete their education and be hired as nurses under a section of the proclamation. In order to become a registered nurse in the state of Iowa, students have to pass an examination to earn a national qualification. Annually, an estimated 90 to 95 percent of Iowa's nursing students pass the examination, which qualifies them to work in the state's hospitals. With all of the challenges our communities are facing, it has been really inspiring to see our students rise to the occasion. Des Moines Area Community College Boone Campus Nursing Chairperson Whitney Johnson said, We have students throughout the program who are working additional hours in healthcare to meet the demand and who are truly going above and beyond with their compassion and their care. Their dedication to continuing their education and reaching graduation has been outstanding and we are very proud of their hard work and their determination. Pinning ceremonies for nursing students like Lunenburg from all four of the college's locations in Ankeny, Boone, Carroll, and Des Moines will be held individually on an at-home basis next week. According to the school, a DMAC facility member, excuse me, faculty member, will visit the home of each graduating nursing student to give them a pin and snap a photography or a photograph. The nursing pinning ceremony is such a rite of passage for nursing graduates as they are officially welcomed into the profession and it is incredibly meaningful to our graduates, said Dr. Kendra Erickson, Des Moines Area Community College Nursing Education Director. We wanted to continue that tradition while being safe. Lunenberg said joining the nursing profession during a crisis is a call nurses have historically answered. He cited the role of Florence Nightingale, the founder of modern nursing, who was instrumental during the Crimean War. Nurses were born through times of chaos and fear, Lunenberg said. This is where nurses thrive. We are called to be in the midst of the chaos and care for those affected. I am excited to be a part of such an amazing profession and keep the world through, or help the world, through this chaotic time. Our next story, White House Rejects the CDC reopening guidance as too prescriptive. The story is written by Anna Edney and Jennifer Jacobs. They write for Bloomberg. The White House blocked the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention from issuing specific guidance for U.S. daycare centers, restaurants, churches, theaters, and other businesses to reopen from the coronavirus outbreak. Out of concern, the recommendations were too prescriptive 
according to two Trump administration officials. CDC leadership hadn't signed off on the guidance before it was submitted to the White House's Coronavirus Task Force, said a task force official. One issue was that the CDC guidance did not account for whether businesses were in hard-hit parts of the country or not, said the task force official and the second person, a White House official. Both asked not to be identified because the deliberations were not meant to be public. Kristen Nordland, a spokeswoman for the CDC, declined to comment. The White House task force issued broad guidelines for reopening the country on April 16, but largely left the specifics to states on how to restart economic and social activities. The CDC was told the task force would look at revisions to the guidance, but the task force has not received an updated document, said the administration officials. The CDC has tasked with protecting Americans from health threats and had been the agency U.S. officials turned to during the pandemics and other outbreaks, but it has largely been sidelined during this virus response. Vice President Michael Pence has been leading the task force, and President Trump dominated most of the daily briefings for the public. The Associated Press first reported the disagreement over the CDC guidance. A version of the guidance posted by the Associated Press gives detailed instructions to businesses and churches on how to protect workers and customers, how to clean spaces, how to minimize risk from the virus. Summer camps, for example, would be told to limit interaction between groups of children, maintain social distancing measures, and check people for symptoms of the disease. Child care centers would be limited to caring for children of essential workers early on, and then later expand to more services. U.S. coronavirus cases have been soaring since mid-March. There have been more than 1.2 million confirmed U.S. COVID-19 cases and more than 75,000 deaths. While outbreaks in New York and New Jersey appear to be on the downslope, the country continues to add more than 20,000 new cases each day. Another story from Bloomberg News. This one's written by Chris Strom and John Harney. It's titled Barr, that's Attorney General Barr, vows to push overturning of Obamacare. Attorney General William Barr said the Justice Department would continue its efforts to invalidate Obamacare, even as millions of Americans have lost their health insurance during the coronavirus pandemic. Barr, in an interview with CBS News on Thursday, said the department would ask the Supreme Court to overturn the Affordable Care Act when it takes up a politically charged case this October weeks before the presidential election. We had an opportunity, all the stakeholders in the administration, to discuss this, and the department is going to be taking the position as the president states, Barr said. He was asked if that could mean depriving even more people of health coverage during a health and economic crisis. The president made clear that he strongly supports coverage of pre-existing conditions, Barr replied, and there will be coverage of pre-existing conditions. And you know he expects to fix and replace Obamacare with a better health care system, he said. But the administration has not advanced a replacement should Obamacare be thrown out. During the 2016 campaign, Donald Trump vowed to repeal the Affordable Care Act 
After legislation to do just that failed in the Senate, the administration has tried to diminish it while also endorsing legal challenges. Late in 2018, United States District Court Judge Reed O'Connor in Fort Worth, Texas, agreed with a coalition of Republican states led by Texas that the Affordable Care Act, the health care overhaul by President Barack Obama, had to be eviscerated after Congress last year zeroed out a key provision, the tax penalty for not complying with the requirement to buy insurance. Some Democrats and some legal scholars ridiculed the ruling, but the Supreme, the Supreme Court agreed to rule on the question. And here are some of your letters to the editor. The first one's written by Gary Youngberg. He works for Ames Silversmithing. It's titled, Don't Let a Snazzy Name Fool You by Local. Uh, the recent full-page ad in the Tribune by Federated Mint offering state silver bars is simply a snake oil ploy to sell overpriced silver bullion products to the unsuspecting public. As a seller of silver, gold, and platinum bullion products for nearly 45 years, I can say these half-ounce bars offered at the state minimum price of $29 is an affront to the public and so overpriced that it is laughable. With silver currently trading around $14.87 per ounce, legitimate dealers will sell one ounce of silver bars, twice the amount of federal mint is offering for around $18 to $19 per bar. Federated Mint is selling these for $58 an ounce, which is simply unconscionable. Make no mistake, the name Federated Mint sure sounds good, but don't let a snazzy name fool you. Buy local and buy smart. That letter from Gary Youngberg uh, from Ames Silversmithing. The next letter is from three different people. Steve Goodhue, he works for United Way. He's the, uh, doesn't work for United Way. I think he's the annual campaign chairperson for United Way. Callie and Rick Sanders, who are also campaign chairpersons for the United Way. And Roger Klusner, who is also a campaign chairperson for the United Way. And uh, the story is titled, United Way Works to Help Solve Local Needs. Uncertainty has hit our community and the world in an unprecedented way. Yet, we can be certain that United Way of Story County is at the forefront of meeting needs. We applaud the response efforts of this organization and what they are undertaking. United Way of Story County staff have been working tirelessly to bring together partners and work as a critical part of the community to identify solutions for a variety of local needs. Here are some examples of these. Convening conversations on how to ensure medical staff and other essential personnel can access childcare. Connecting with food pantries to hear their needs and then working quickly to disperse funds for food security. Publicizing resources for financial stability and also encouraging families to think of months ahead when budget planning. Working on solutions to childhood hunger and creating access to books while school is out of session. Ensuring homeless individuals and families are not without support. Convening a new team of partners to explore ways to help immigrants and refugees. Connecting volunteers with critical needs. As longtime volunteers for the United Way and current leaders in the annual campaign, 
We can attest to this organization being able to put efforts where they are needed for the benefit of Story County. United Way of Story County has started an emergency response fund dedicated to helping partner agencies meet the increased needs and growing costs associated with delivering services during the pandemic. Please join us in making a gift to this fund. We know this is a time in history where we need to join forces and help each other. We are certain United Way of Story County can help us with this goal. In the comics today, there is real life. Uh, the husband is sitting in a chair. The wife walks up to him and says, we've got a lot of stuff to do today. And the husband says, all done. I came down, I made the coffee, I turned on the TV. What else is there? And the wife says, what else is there? In another comic, this one's titled F minus. There's a man laying on a masseuse's table. He's getting a massage. Uh, there's another man giving him a massage. And the man giving the massage says, I guess my interest started when I was a kid and everyone would always mention how good I was at massaging Play-Doh. Our next story, a unique antibody theory proposed. Could llamas be the key to fighting coronavirus? This story is written by Laura Corte. She writes for Austin American Statesman. A Belgian llama named Winter could hold the key to fighting the coronavirus. Researchers at the University of Texas in Austin, in coordination with the National Institutes of Health and Gent University in Belgium, published a paper on Tuesday in the journal Cell about the potential use of antibodies found in llamas to fight the coronavirus. Years ago, when studying two earlier forms of coronavirus, SARS-CoV-1 and MERS-CoV-V, researchers found a certain antibody in winter and other llamas could effectively attach itself to and neutralize the virus's spike protein, the portion that attacks other healthy cells. The team has formed a new antibody that shows promise for treating SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. By linking two copies of the llama antibody that worked against the earlier SARS virus, they demonstrated that the new antibody neutralizes viruses displaying spike proteins from SARS-CoV-2 in cell cultures. While we were working on this project, the new SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus emerged, and the spike proteins are pretty similar between SARS-CoV-2 and the original SARS, said Jason McLean, Associate Professor of Molecular Biosciences at UT Austin and co-senior author. We thought that maybe this nanobody, uh, if we isolated it, would also bind to this one. Unlike most vaccines, which have to be introduced to the body months before infection to be effective, antibody therapy works almost immediately, McLean said. A potential treatment using the llama antibodies could provide quick protection for vulnerable populations such as older people and healthcare workers. Immediately after injection, they'll basically have immunity to the virus. It will wane over time after a certain number of months, perhaps, but they become immediately immune, McLean said. As antibody testing ramps up in the United States, experts say the level of immunity against the coronavirus is unknown, 
even in the presence of antibodies. The team will begin animal testing soon, which will be conducted by researchers in Belgium, McLean said. They could advance to human trials in about two months. If the trials reach a point where injection needs to be manufactured in mass quantities, scientists could multiply and grow the antibodies in a controlled environment. This means no llamas would be sacrificed for their useful antibodies. Around the world, many researching teams are racing to find an effective treatment for the coronavirus. One team at Oxford University hopes to test 6,000 people by the end of May, according to the New York Times. Researchers at Texas A&M University are recruiting health care workers to test the effectiveness of a tuberculosis vaccine in fighting the coronavirus. Things are moving quickly, McLean said, and he is confident antibody treatment will be one of the most useful methods of fighting the coronavirus. He appreciates scientists' efforts to slow the spread of the virus. They each have pros and cons and can be used differently, and the more development, the better, McLean said of other research. We will continue to learn from those for future pandemics. Our next story, it's titled Lives Lost, Medal of Honor winner downplayed heroism. The story is written by Jay Reeves, who writes for the Associated Press. It's uh, from Birmingham, Alabama. Decades after the Vietnam War, retired Army Commander Sergeant Major Bernie Adkins had a simple way of explaining how he survived mortar attacks and rifle bullets that killed so many people all around him. It was not my day, he'd say, when the coronavirus found Adkins and felled its first Medal of Honor recipient April 17. Adkins, who was 86, was an Alabama war hero who returned home to become an accountant, teach night courses to adults trying to better themselves, and launch a nonprofit foundation awarding scholarships to veterans. The resident of the small city of Opelika received the nation's highest military honor from then President Barack Obama during a 2014 White House ceremony. While deeply honored and humbled, Atkins deflected attention from his courageous actions, fighting off waves of enemy attackers at a strategic point in South Vietnam. What I did is not heroic. What I did was, that was my job. That was what I was trained for. That was what I was paid for as a professional soldier, and I was trying to do the job in a professional way, Atkins said in an oral history project for the Library of Congress after the award ceremony. Atkins died three weeks after being admitted to the same hospital where one of his five children, Dr. Keith Atkins, works as a surgeon. The son said his father was married for 60 years and gave back whatever he could around Opelika, an old railroad town of about 31,000 people near Auburn University, helping others not only in wartime but also back at home. We want his legacy to be not just what he did in the military, said Keith Atkins, his son, who wasn't involved in his father's care. We want to show that character that he had and what it led him to be when he was out of the military. Atkins liked the idea of the military as a career, but wanted more than that administrative position or regular infantry job. So he applied for the Special Forces, made it through a lengthy training regimen, and landed in Vietnam in 1963 for the first three tours. About three years later, at the age of 32, Adkins fought the battle that brought him a lifetime of accolades. 
a sergeant first class at the time. Adkins was in charge of a mortar crew at a U.S. Army base camp in the Ao Shaw Valley of South Vietnam near the border with Laos when the Viet Cong opened fire on March 9, 1966. He ran through exploding mortar rounds to drag several troops to safety, according to his medal citation, and then exposed himself to sniper fire to carry wounded comrades to safety. Our next story, can these 13 retailers survive permanent store closings, or are there bankruptcies coming? This story is written by Nathan Boomy, he writes for USA Today. Retailers that were already struggling before the coronavirus pandemic started are beginning to crumble. Fashion chain J. Crew Group and luxury department store retailer Neiman Marcus Group filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in the first week of May as they faced mounting losses with their stores temporarily closed. While both companies are planning to remain in business, bankruptcy poses the possibility of permanent store closings or outright liquidation as COVID-19 throttles sales. JCPenney, which was facing declining sales and several years of losses heading into this crisis, is also considered for filing bankruptcy and hoping to avoid liquidation. Of the 25, excuse me, of the 125 restaurants or retail companies tracked by the S&P Global Ratings, about 30% now have a credit rating that indicates that they have at least a 1 in 2 chance of defaulting on their debts, which is often a precursor of bankruptcy or liquidation. We believe the economic shutdown and lingering social distancing behaviors will trigger a broad shakeout of retail as the industry will be forced to meaningfully reduce its physical footprint and rapidly evolve to reach the post-pandemic consumer. S&P credit analyst Sarah Wyeth wrote Monday in a research note. In particular, if there were any doubts about the eventual demise of many American malls, the impact of the pandemic will likely dispel them. For every day the retailers are closed during the coronavirus crisis, the chances that they won't survive this pandemic grow larger. While some retailers are flourishing, namely chains with grocery sales like Walmart, Target, Kroger, Costco, others are trying to stave off doom like Forever 21, Joanne Stores, and David's Bridal. In many cases, these retailers were already in trouble as Americans shop increasingly online. U.S. retailers have so far announced 2,210 permanent closures this year, most of which were made public before the pandemic began, according to retail analytics CoreSight Research. The digital transition's effect on retail was already painfully evident before the pandemic began. Papyrus, Models Sporting Goods, and Art Van Furniture had already revealed plans to liquidate all 635 of their locations this year. That follows a year in which more than 9,700 stores closed, according to CoreSight Research. It's a battle of who's going to survive, who's just going to close, and who's going to need to file for bankruptcy. Camilla Yovanovitch, a retail stock analyst for CFRA Research, said in a recent interview. The companies that are most at risk at the norms uh, are ones that already distressed before the crisis. 
but it's not bad news for all retailers. Home improvement stores like Home Depot and Lowe's and drugstore chains like Walgreens and CVS have experienced an increase in business. Here's a list of retailers that are trying to avoid bankruptcy or store closings, according to USA Today. JCPenney is considering filing for bankruptcy protection as the retailer grapples with the fallout from coronavirus pandemic and its own long-in-the-making struggles. The Plano, Texas-based company is exploring the possibility, along with a range of other options, including out-of-court debt restructuring, according to a person familiar with the deliberations who was not authorized to speak publicly. With all of its stores temporarily closed because of the coronavirus, JCPenney is bleeding cash while it awaits the chance to get back on its feet. The company's been challenged for years with the decline of the department stores sector. J.C. Crew filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection Monday, May 4th, after years of struggling with too much debt. The company, which leases all of its stores, disclosed in a court filing that it had hired a real estate consultancy and a liquidator to help it alleviate its leases and negotiate rent relief. Permanent store closings are possible. Neiman Marcus, the luxury department store, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection Thursday, May 7th, after dealing with too much debt. The company said in a statement that it is not planning mass store closings on a permanent basis after reaching a restructuring deal with the majority of its creditors. But the company said it may consider future closings on a case-by-case -case basis. Forever 21 filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy September but plans to close roughly 100 struggling stores and save the rest of its business. The company then finished a deal on February 19 to sell most of its remaining assets to a group of investors led by Authentic Brands and mall owner Simon Property Group, which had previously used a similar model to rescue fashion retailer Arapostale. Uh, talk about timing. Exactly one month earlier, while still, excuse me, exactly one month later, while still deciding which stores to liquidate, the buyer temporarily closed all Forever 21 locations due to the pandemic. The pandemic disruption threatens to derail Forever 21's comeback before it even gets underway. Sears and Kmart, these sibling chains have been out of bankruptcy for about 15 months, but it was hard to envision a return to greatness before the pandemic pandemic, let alone after it. Sears and Kmart have closed more than 3,500 stores and cut about 250,000 jobs over the last 15 years. After tumbling into Chapter 11 bankruptcy in October 2018, the chains narrowly escaped total liquidation after a last-minute sale in February 2019 to their parent company's longtime investor and former chief executive, Eddie Lampert. But time is running out for Sears and Kmart to stabilize their business. In February 2020, another 51 Sears and 45 Kmart locations were set to close, leaving some 182 surviving stores. Joanne Stores, the fabrics chain, was already under pressure due to the effects of President Donald Trump's trade war with China, which led to tariffs on many of the goods the company sells. Now, temporary store closings have worsened things. We believe Joanne will run into liquidity problems within the next 12 months, said S&P Wyeth. 
Steak and Shake. The restaurant chain has been ailing for years with a term loan due March 19, 2021. The timing of the coronavirus could not have been worse. S&P rates the company as significant risk to default further on its debts. California Pizza Kitchen. Trouble was mounting for this restaurant chain well before the pandemic began. S&P had predicted the company would breach its financial maintenance covenants without a last-minute financial maneuver such as relief from lenders. But given the cat catastrophic impact of casual dining and the company's weak performance going into it, we believe California Pizza Kitchen will likely restructure its capital structure in the next six months, Wyeth reported. David's Bridal survived Chapter 11 bankruptcy, emerging from the process in January 2019, and charting plans to cut prices, improve its digital operations, and add additional selections. Now, weddings and receptions have been disrupted throughout the country, with many governments limiting the number of people who can attend. You are listening to the Ames Tribune on IRIS, your Iowa radio reading and information service for the blind and print handicapped. And your reader today is Dave Sauerman. It is time for us to turn to the obituaries. Norbert Jacob Russell, age 87, of Rogers, Minnesota, the father of Anne Lee Ames, passed away May 4th after a 20-year battle with cancer. He was born May 29, 1932, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, to Matt and Matilda Weber. He was raised on a farm in Rogers, where he resided his entire life. He played baseball for the St. Michael team and was known for being an outstanding pitcher. In 1953, he was drafted to serve his country during the Korean conflict with the United States Army. During a time of leave from his training, he was introduced to Patricia Pertrowski. The two became pen pals when he had to leave again for his military duties, and eventually Norbert proposed to his honey. When he was discharged from the Army, Norbert and Pat were joined in marriage in June 1955. They took over the family farm from his parents, where they raised their seven children together. Norbert was a hard worker, taking care of many of the farming chores while also working as a carpenter. He would find the time, however, to make trips to Millie Lacks Lake to fish in his favorite spots. He was an avid outdoorsman. He liked to hunt and trap shoot with Pat. Although he courageously battled cancer for 20 years, he still kept his fun-loving sense of humor. He was strong throughout his treatments and still made sure his family was taken care of. Norbert and Pat would have celebrated their 65th wedding anniversary this year. Those left to honor his memory are his wife, Pat, their seven children, Anne Lee and Dick, Eugene Russell and Judy, Joan Morical, Lois Sipos and Dennis, Carol DeVries and Paul, Lloyd Russell and Diane, and Sharon Norberg and Mark. Ten grandchildren, eleven great-grandchildren, and many other relatives, neighbors, and friends. He was preceded in death by his parents, sister Bernice, and son-in-law Dwayne Morical. A private family burial is planned, and a memorial mass of Christian burial will be held at a later time due to COVID-19 restrictions. Memorials can be made to the American Cancer Society in Norbert's name. Our next story, around 50% of people are wearing face mask coverings due to a coronavirus survey finds. 
The story is written by Zachary Eanes. He writes for the News and Observer in Raleigh, North Carolina. Just a slim majority of people in the United States are wearing face coverings in public to combat the coronavirus pandemic, according to a new survey from the North Carolina Research Institute, or RTI International. Around 51% of people are wearing face coverings in public, according to the survey conducted between April 20 and April 10th. The responses came about a week after the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommended that people wear face masks in public. That figure was a 40 percentage point increase from March before the CDC made that recommendation. Linda Squires, a health communication scientist at RTI, said in a webinar on Wednesday, the survey, part of a large gathering of information RTI is putting together on responses to the spread of COVID-19, included responses from nearly 2,300 people across the country. The survey was weighted to U.S. demographics, the researchers noted. Squires said the increase in people wearing masks can likely be attributed to recommendations that came from the CDC and the World Health Organization, though she noted there has been confusion around the topic, with some states and cities requiring masks and others not requiring them. It likely didn't help the recommendation to wear masks came after the weeks of U.S. officials telling people they were not necessary. The message changed, Squire said in a phone interview. At first, they were saying only healthcare providers needed to wear a mask, and the general public doesn't need to. So that April recommendation to wear masks was basically a new message. There were also some regional differences in face covering uptake, with people living in Northeast being more likely to adopt a face covering in public, other than regions in the U.S., other than other regions in the U.S. Comparatively, there has been a much greater adoption of other preventative measures. 91% of respondents said they are social distancing, and 86% said they are sheltering in place. Another 76% of people said they were not visiting family members in their homes, and a majority of people appear to be willing to follow those guidelines for as long as necessary, which might be a while as Deborah Burks, excuse me, I think that's Bricks, the White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator recently said, social distancing will be with us through the summer. Around 86% of respondents said that they felt confident they could shelter in place for as long as authorities recommended, and 90% agreed that everyone should be following the rules around social distancing and school and business closings. Squires said if the country wants to keep up those rates, of support for social distancing, health communicators will have to clearly target what is motivating people to follow them. She said around a third of surveyed people were following measures for self-motivated reasons. Another third out of the desire to protect people in their immediate circle of friends and family, and another third supported social distancing measures to protect other people in their community. If the country wants to maintain high rates of social distancing, she said, it will have to continue to remind people that doing so is protecting their mother, themselves, or other vulnerable people in their city. And news from around the nation, from Greenville, Alabama, a mayor who said he didn't pay or did not pay much attention to the coronavirus has been diagnosed with COVID-19 along with his wife. While some advocate for a wider reopening of the economy, Mayor Dexter McClendon told WSFA Television 
he is for moving slower after his illness. We don't need to open up all the way, he said. From Juneau, Alaska, the state-run ferry system is not requiring passengers and crew to wear face coverings. With a spokesperson saying rider numbers are low and social distancing on board is easily obtainable. From Phoenix, Arizona, Arizona State University will continue to provide COVID-19 models to the public despite instructions from the Arizona Department of Health Services to pause the work, the university said. From Little Rock, Arkansas, the Buffalo National River is reopening for some uses late next week after the national park was closed amid the pandemic. From Sacramento, California, millions of protective masks that were to arrive in California this week as part of the state's nearly $1 billion deal with a Chinese company have been delayed, according to Governor Gavin Newsom. From Denver, Colorado, the state got a flyover to salute healthcare workers and others responding to the coronavirus outbreak and to boost morale. The Colorado Air National Guard launched F-16 Fighting Falcons from Buckley Air Force Base in Aurora on Wednesday afternoon. From Hartford, Connecticut, the state's colleges and universities may open at their discretion in a phased-in way beginning May 20th and September 1st with mass COVID-19 testing of students living on residential campuses under a package of recommendations submitted Wednesday to Governor Ned Lamont. The plan depends on certain benchmarks being met. From Wilmington, Delaware, more people have tried to buy guns in the state during the coronavirus pandemic than at any other time before on record, largely to quell fears that a stunted economy and mass unemployment would lead to increased crime. The pandemic so far has proved the contrary. From Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia, registered nurses protested at Lafayette Park on Thursday morning to honor the lives of medical professionals who have lost their lives to COVID-19, according to WUSA Television. Uh, Reader's note, Lafayette Park is directly across the street from the White House. From Tallahassee, Florida, the state will look to new ways to expand coronavirus testing, including allowing tests at pharmacies and randomly checking blood donations for antibodies, according to Governor Ron DeSantos. From Atlanta, Georgia, state tax revenues dropped by $1 billion in April thanks to coronavirus-related disruptions. Agencies have been mandated to propose 14% budget reductions. From Honolulu, Hawaii, Oahu's lifeguards have quietly returned to their towers, dotting the island's public beaches with new rules and strategies for preventing the spread of coronavirus. The familiar lifeguard uniforms of yellow shirts and red shorts now also include red face masks, according to the Honolulu Star Advertiser. From Boise, Idaho, a group of inmates at Idaho's largest prison is suing the state for overcrowding saying cell blocks are so packed that prison department can't maintain sanitary toilets, putting prisoners at risk during the coronavirus outbreak. In Chicago, Illinois, staff at dozens of nursing homes in the state called off a strike set to begin on Friday after their union reached a tentative deal with nursing home owners that will increase workers' pay to at least $15 and quarantine additional hours bonus pay during the coronavirus pandemic. And from Indianapolis, Indiana, 
The state's top health official said Wednesday that the poor health conditions for many residents have likely added to the state's coronavirus death toll. From New Orleans, Louisiana, the number of people hospitalized for COVID-19 in the state continued to trend downward Wednesday, along with the number requiring ventilators, according to figures released by the state health department. In Augusta, Maine, the state has partnered with a Westbrook-based company to buy enough coronavirus testing kits to more than triple the state's testing capacity, meaning anyone in Maine suspected of having the virus will be able to get a test. In Silver Spring, Maryland, the state has opened a temporary morgue at an ice skating and hockey facility to store bodies during the COVID-19 crisis. From Boston, Massachusetts, limited use of golf courses will be allowed, Governor Charlie Barker, or excuse me, Baker, announced Thursday as the state looks ahead to gradual opening of the economy starting May 18. And in Clinton, Michigan, Clinton Township, a Macomb County man who barely survived COVID-19 repaid a hospital by delivering pasta and garlic bread by helicopter. I just thought I'd be, it would be something very unique to fly it in and give them something to see and basically salute them for all the great work they are doing, Jim Santilli said. From Minneapolis, Minnesota, Minnesotans should fish close to home, that's fish close to home, to help curb the coronavirus pandemic when the walleye season opens this weekend, avoiding overnight stays and driving no further than they can go on one tank of gas, Department of Natural Resources officials said. A surge in fishing license sales indicates many Minnesotans are getting antsy under the state's stay-at-home order and really want to hit the lakes. From Jackson, Mississippi, Governor Tate Reeves said Wednesday that the state will not consider early release for prisoners during the coronavirus pandemic, even with inmates living in conditions that make social distancing difficult. From St. Joe's, Missouri, an employee of a pork plant where hundreds of workers tested positive for the coronavirus has died from the virus. In Great Falls, Montana, for patrons at a tiki bar that has a back wall of a window into a motel swimming pool, it's typical to see mermaids in the water five nights a week. After going back and forth with state officials, the Sip and Dip Lounge has gotten the okay to bring the underwater entertainment back as the bar reopens, though there will only be one mermaid swimming at a time, sometimes donning a mask. In Lincoln, Nebraska, the state has officially dispatched more National Guard members, 393, to respond to the coronavirus pandemic than it did during last year's record-setting statewide floods, according to state officials. From Lincoln, Nebraska, the state has officially dispatched, already read that one, sorry. From Las Vegas, Nevada, a group has formed to try to recall Mayor Carolyn Goodman, who drew condemnation from elected officials and others with her push to reopen casinos and suggestion that her city could serve as a control group to measure the impact of reopening during the coronavirus pandemic. From Concord, New Hampshire, members of the Executive Council are protesting Governor Chris Sununu's authority to spend state money to combat the coronavirus. The council voted four to one Wednesday to table what usually is a routine request from the state treasurer 
to spend money for all functions of state government for the next month. From Trenton, New Jersey, more than one million residents have filed for jobless benefits, and the state has paid out about $2 billion since the coronavirus outbreak hit in March. State labor officials announced Thursday. The State Labor and Workforce Development Department said the number of claims is by far the most ever recorded over a similar time frame. And from New York City, the city will test 140,000 people for coronavirus antibodies between next week and early June, Mayor Bill de Blasio announced on Thursday. From Winston-Salem, North Carolina, three counties on the tourist-reliant Outer Banks announced plans Wednesday to lift coronavirus-related visitor restrictions, although they warned of the need to continue to practice social distancing amid the ongoing pandemic. From Bismarck, North Dakota, a group attempting to get a wide-ranging measure on the November ballot filed a lawsuit in federal court Wednesday asking that the state's ban on electronic signature gathering be waived amid the coronavirus pandemic. North Dakota voters' first constitutional amendment would transfer the responsibility of drawing political districts from the legislature to the voter-approved State Ethics Commission. It also would create a paper record for every vote cast in an election, create open primaries, and instant runoff elections, and extend the time to cast a ballot for military and overseas voters. Uh, From Columbus, Ohio, Bars and restaurants can fully reopen in two weeks on May 21, with outside dining allowed a few days earlier on May 15, Governor Mike DeWine announced Thursday. Barbershops, hair salons, nail salons, and day spas will also reopen May 15, the Republican governor said. And from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, revenue collections in the state fell by half a billion dollars in April from one year ago, amid an economic slowdown caused by the coronavirus pandemic. From Portland, Oregon, Governor Kate Brown on Thursday outlined a plan to reopen salons, gyms, barbershops, and restaurants in the least affected and mostly rural parts of Oregon after more than a month of statewide stay-at-home orders. But she also cautioned that any loosening of restrictions could be rolled back if COVID-19 infection rates surge. From Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Governor Tom Wolf on Thursday extended a moratorium on foreclosures and evictions by another two months, saying residents should not have to worry about losing their homes during the pandemic. From Providence, Rhode Island, the state has met several benchmarks that Governor Gina Raimondo said Thursday will allow her to lift the state's stay-at-home order Friday and initiate a phased-in restart of the economy this weekend. From Columbia, South Carolina, health officials vow over the next two months to more than triple the number of coronavirus tests performed in the state. The state has been at the bottom of rates of testing compared with the population. From Nashville, Tennessee, the city will slowly begin reopening its economy Monday amid the coronavirus pandemic. Officials said Thursday, Nashville's first of four reopening phases will allow 50% capacity at dine-in restaurants, bars serving food, retail stores, and commercial businesses. In Austin, Texas, Republican Governor Greg Abbott on Thursday removed jail as a punishment for violating his coronavirus restrictions following an outcry over a Dallas salon owner 
who was locked up for refusing to keep her business closed. Shelley Luther's punishment quickly became a rallying cry for Republican lawmakers and conservative activists. From Salt Lake City, Utah, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Thursday said it will reopen 17 of its sacred temples for wedding ceremonies. The announcement comes one day after Utah state officials said churches can begin holding services again as long as they adhere to social distancing guidelines. Despite that, Latter-day Saint worship services held Sundays at churches will remain shuttered, according to church officials. From Montpelier, Vermont, the state is recovering some of the milk farmers are having to dispose of and donating it to the Vermont Food Bank with help from a $60,000 grant from the Vermont Community Foundation. From Richmond, Virginia, more than 86,000 federal loans totaling $12.7 billion have been approved for small businesses in the state for relief amid the coronavirus pandemic. From Walla Walla, Washington, county officials are retracting their claim that some people held parties in which they intentionally exposed themselves to the coronavirus. From Madison, Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin System President Ray Cross directed campuses Thursday to prepare to cut academic programs and brace for layoffs as the coronavirus pandemic deepens the system's financial losses. University of Wisconsin-Madison and University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, the system's two largest campuses, would be exempt. And from Cheyenne, Wyoming, the number of people who applied for unemployment benefits last week dropped compared to the week before as the state begins to ease restrictions meant to stop the virus's spread. And that's what brings us to the end of listening to the Ames Tribune for this Friday, May 8th. Your reader today has been Dave Sauerman. Thank you for listening to IRIS, your Iowa radio reading and information service for the blind and print handicapped.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Trapped beneath the permafrost and under the deep ocean floor that surrounds continents is enough natural gas to power humankind for thousands of years. This natural gas, mostly methane, is frozen in water in a form we call methane hydrates. The methane came from decaying organic matter or migrated up from deeper natural gas deposits and was then trapped in very high concentrations in frozen layers of sediment at high pressures. When brought to the surface, the hydrates melt, releasing around 160 times their volume in natural gas. This sounds like a very promising energy source, and companies and countries, especially those with limited resources like Japan, are trying to recover the gas. But test plants have produced very little. This is partly because processing methane hydrates is a new and difficult engineering challenge, and partly because we know very little about them. To study methane hydrates, scientists have built special high-pressure, low-temperature labs where they can be kept in their frozen state. One innovative project in Alaska is trying to pump in liquid CO2 under high pressure to liberate the gas. If successful, this new process could make methane hydrate deposits not just an energy source, but a place to sequester carbon. Eventually, engineers will probably figure out cost-effective, low-impact ways to produce methane from methane hydrates. One more reason that natural gas will likely play a larger role in our energy future. I'm Scott Tinker, keeping it cool on Earth Day. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more Earth Date stories at earthdate.org.